verse in Deuteronomy to go up to the mountain, and then it says, and stay on the mountain, which seems like a peculiar thing for God to do, to tell Moses, go up on a mountain, and then actually, if once you're there, if you could just be there, uh, that would be great. Um, but the interesting thing about it is, there's no mistake in the translation, and actually it reads better in Hebrew than we get it, and it says, go up on the mountain and be on the mountain. And so it's this idea that as humans, and I'm sure that you can relate, and I know I can, uh, we oftentimes go somewhere or we experience something, but we're not actually there. We're not actually present. We're not really physically, well, we're physically there, but we're not all there mentally or spiritually or emotionally. And, uh, and so this idea for this series is, how can we, it's Lent, you know, if you, didn't, if you didn't know, I figured I'd just let you know. It's Lent right now, and Lent, of course, is the 40 days before Easter, not counting Sundays, that leads up to resurrection. So how can we be fully present for resurrection and for Easter when it happens? Because if, 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 if it's anything like Christmas, sometimes it, it, when, when we experience Christmas, there's all the craziness of Christmas, and then we look back and say, what just happened? Or where did Christmas go, right? You've said this before. So we're hoping that as we really intentionally lean into Lent and talk about some of the things that Lent offers, that we will cultivate and create space in our hearts and lives for the the immense and profound magnitude that resurrection actually brings. So last week we talked about ashes. Uh, For hundreds and hundreds of years in the Christian church, uh, Ash Wednesday has begun the beginning of Lent. And people have done this this ritual uh, where you get ashes put on your forehead. And I asked the question, why ashes? Like, what is significant about ashes that we have to think about uh, or, or that's connected to Lent? And we talked about a couple of things, just for by way of review. Uh, we talked about the idea that these ashes remind us that this is where we've come from. That in Genesis 2, God breathes life into this pile of dirt, these ashes, so to speak, this dust, and Adam becomes a human. And then later on, and, and it will come to all of us, new flash if you weren't aware. Uh, death will come to all of us. So this is where we've come from and this is where we're going to go. Uh, later on in Genesis 3, after they eat the, eat the, the tree from the, 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 or they eat the tree, they eat the fruit from the tree, God says to them, wouldn't that have been an awesome story? They just devoured the whole tree. Uh, God says to them, it's from ashes you've come and ashes you will return. So it's this idea that these ashes center us into uh, the reality and, and the, the finitude of who we are as human beings. Uh, they also tell us that this is a journey and that it's headed somewhere. That while ashes tell this story, this particular piece of it, that this is where we've come, this is where we're going, they actually tap into a bigger story and that story says that this whole thing is headed somewhere and it's headed toward resurrection. And lastly, we talked about the fact that um, we're not alone. That oftentimes, if you've ever been, if you've been a part of this growing up as a, as a, as a child, or you, you were a part of a Catholic church, or maybe still are, uh, and you've seen people walking around the supermarket and the, the grocery store and, and work sometimes, you'll see them with ashes on their head. And it's this, this, uh, this communication act of uh, we are not alone, that you're not alone, that there are other people out there who uh, resonate with this story. And so that was last week. This week, I want to really lean into what are the implications of Lent. So if Lent traditionally has been three things, one being prayer, two being uh, fasting uh, or denying ourselves of something, and the third being almsgiving or serving, uh, and we've kind of added into that, like we take on a discipline for Lent sometimes. If these are the three traditional things that are a part of Lent, I want to to really press into the, the second one of fasting or denying ourselves something and ask, 
what are the implications of this? Uh, where do we get this from? Why is it helpful? Is it beneficial? People for hundreds of years have been doing this. Do they have anything to teach us? So that, that's kind of where we're going this morning. In order to do that, we're going to have to lay some groundwork, and it's going to be a, a slow train coming. So I just want to warn you this morning, we're going to do a lot of spade work to, in the beginning, and we're going to lay some, some foundation to get to a particular point, and then there's not going to be much left after that. But all of this work beforehand is going to be really, really important, all right? So just be aware uh, and, and saddle up, because here we go. Are you ready? Okay, let me do this. If you would pray with me, uh, and then we'll jump right in. So let's pray together. God uh, of heaven and of earth, the maker of heaven and earth, um, we want, as we open your scriptures today, uh, it's our desire, it's my desire, that you would be um, completely available to us. Um, This book really doesn't mean anything unless you reveal yourself to us in it. And you've said that you do and you have and you will. So God, we want to take that promise that this word, that these words written thousands of years ago by lots of different people actually connect to you and actually have been the means, one of the means by which you give yourself to us and you communicate yourself to us. So as we open them this morning, God, would they be that, this communication act? Would you show yourself to us? Would you reveal yourself and speak through these words uh, right where we are in 2011? God, we pray in your name, by the power of your spirit, All God's people said, amen. Okay, so first and foremost, I hope I don't kick that over. Here's here's what I need to do first. I need to tell you about a word and a concept that's gonna be really important as we go forward. And the word is this, it's called adiaphora. And it's spelled like that. it's a, it comes from a Latin word, and, and which originally was t- talked about in Greek, because this idea comes from the beginning of the first, second, third century when Jesus was around and just later. There were a group of people called the Stoic philosophers, and actually in Acts chapter 17, we find Paul in the Areopagus, and he's talking to two different groups of people. And does anybody know one of them? I just mentioned it. Stoics, right? And the... Epicureans were the other ones. At least that's what, that's what uh, the writer of Acts tells us, which most likely was Luke. So Luke tells us that Paul's in, in the Areopagus and he's talking with these two groups of people, the Stoics and the Epicureans. So the Stoics are a group of people and they have a philosophy about life and about morality and ethical things and, and, and the way in which humans should live in this world. So the Stoics, uh, they, they taught this idea that uh, the development of self-control and of sort of fortitude, like just pressing through as a means uh, for overcoming the the emotions that we feel that we don't necessarily like. So these emotions and things that we feel that can be destructive, the way that you sort of bypass them or get through them, the Stoics believed, was self-control and fortitude. Uh, They also believed that um, this idea that they they held uh, a, that, I'm sorry, (laughs) Welcome to Awaken, everybody. My name's Micah. I'm going to try that again. The Stoics believed, or they held to this idea, that a clear and unbiased thinker allowed you to sort of work your way through these ethical and moral dilemmas and situations in life. Uh, A primary aspect of Stoicism was uh, improving one's ethical and moral behavior. So, 
all things that don't necessarily run contrary to what it means to be a Jesus follower. Obviously, I think they leave out a pretty important part. Uh, their idea of, of how to figure this stuff out, how do we navigate life, was basically a humanistic understanding. That it, within you and within reason and your mind, your capacity and your mind, is the ability to sort of navigate these, these difficult situations and these emotions that we might feel. Are we all still tracking so far? So adiaphora becomes important because adiaphora literally means the things or, or that which is neither morally mandated or morally forbidden. So it's all the things in life that morals or ethics really don't have anything to say about. It, they, they, morally, I'm not bound to do this, nor am I forbidden to do this. So the things that are adiaphora are things that are neither morally binding, morally uh, uh, mandated, or morally forbidden, okay? And this actually gets translated through church history, and you get some debates about this later on in church history about what is adiaphora and what does it include. So if you're going to think about it, I'm going to engage the, uh, the, the, the peeps in the room here. If you're thinking about that which is neither morally uh, mandated or forbidden, so just things in life that are Either or. They're, they're neither, they're neither uh, mandated nor forbidden. Can you think of any? Just shout them out. Things in life that might be considered adiaphora. Okay, bubblegum. Yeah. I mean, as trite as it may sound, yes, absolutely. Bubblegum. What else? Alcohol. Okay. Yes. Neither, neither negative or positive. It's sort of this thing. It's neither mandated nor forbidden. Okay, what else? How about food, all right? Food, whatever, things that you eat. It's not mandated that we eat certain things anymore, nor is it forbidden that we eat certain things anymore. So it's adiaphora. What else? Food, drink, bubble gum. Music could be one, right? Neither mandated nor forbidden. I mean, bad music just shouldn't be played, but it's not forbidden, right? It's not something that's morally forbidden or mandated. Anything else you can think of? Dancing, absolutely, okay? Neither morally mandated nor morally forbidden. Ethically, it's sort of just there. Now, again, I've seen some really bad dancers before, and some of you may have seen me dance because that's why you said that. But adiaphora, yes. Anything else you can think of? Yeah. Bananas, totally. <laughs> Bananas are adiaphora, neither morally binding nor morally forbidden, okay? So you get the idea. Food, drink, music, voting, uh, politics, um, reading, study, intellect, even money, okay? These things are neither morally forbidden nor are they morally mandated. So the things that are adiaphora are that. They're neither mandated nor forbidden. Maybe you could say it this way. Things that are adiaphora are neutral, Right? They're just there, and whether or not they're, they become a, a something of good or something of, of bad or, you know, good or evil isn't connected to the thing in and of themselves, but, but necessarily what one does with the thing, okay? So this is kind of a big concept. So adiaphora are that, those things that are neither morally bit forbidden or mandated. So this is going to become increasingly important as we click through this thing, uh, Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, actually, if you want to turn there, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is Paul writing to a group of people in Corinth, a, a small church, a startup church, if you will. I can relate. Uh, and he has a lot of things to say to these guys, 
But there is this one little piece, this strain of logic that Paul walks us through at the end of chapter three that is absolutely critical and and paramount because really what we're dealing with today, what we're, what, we're, what we're after, the nugget that we're really kind of getting to is freedom in Christ and what does it mean to be free and how do we, how do we relate to that, especially in terms of length. So Paul has this beautiful, beautiful spot at the end of chapter three. Now remember, this is the, 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 the debate that Paul has or that the, the Corinthians are having about should we listen to Paul or should we listen to Apollos or should we listen to Peter? There's all these different people and they think, well, Peter's a better preacher, so we're going to listen to him. And there's a group who say, we're with Peter. And there's a group over here that say, oh no, we're actually with Paul. And Paul says, hey, listen, here's the deal. It doesn't matter where the truth comes from. And he picks it up in verse 21 of chapter three. So then no more boasting about men. All things are yours whether from Paul, Apollo, Cephas, the world, or life, or death, or present, or future, all are yours. And here's the connection. Because you are in Christ, and Christ is from God. So here's what Paul's saying. Corinthian church, friends, it doesn't matter where you find truth. Because if you think about it logically, when you back the truck up a few paces... We believe from the Christian worldview, from the biblical, from the Jesus worldview, that in God exists anything and everything that is true and right about the world that we live in, about us and about himself. In him exists truth, capital T. So if you find truth out there in the world, even if it's not from your particular tribe or your particular you know, uh, perspective or, or your upbringing, if you find truth out there in the world, you can claim it as true and right because it's true and right. Why? Because you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Do you see the connection there? So what Paul is saying here is all things are yours. Now, does that mean anything goes? Like it's just a, a, a blank check to do whatever you want? No, that which is right and true about God, my, humanity, and the world. All of those things that are true are yours because you are in Christ and Christ is of God. Still tracking. So this is absolutely essential to the whole idea of freedom in Christ because Paul says a whole lot more about it and we're going to actually go to a few passages. Turn to Romans chapter 14 if you would a couple of pages to the left. This is a debate in the Roman church about the weak and the strong. He's talking about, and, and really the issues are small things. He starts in verse one, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith, and I would actually interchange one man's freedom, one woman's freedom, allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak or whose freedom is weak eats only vegetables. So there's this debate, of course, these are Jew mostly Jewish people coming from a context where you could only eat certain things. Now they're in the midst of a pagan culture or a culture that's not Jewish and there's, there's idols and there is food being sacrificed to idols. So more often than not, the place where you would get your meat from in a town like Corinth would be from the market. But where did it come from? It actually came from the temple. And, and not the Jewish temples, not the synagogues. So people would come and they would sacrifice these meats, these animals to idols. 
And then the priests would feed people and that which is left over, they would take to the market and sell. So there's this huge debate going on for, for the Jesus follower who used to be Jewish. What do I do? Because these meats were sacrificed to idols. And that, if you don't know, in the Old Testament is completely and utterly forbidden. You don't do that. Not only that, there were certain dietary things that they were running up against, and they're like, what should we do? Paul says, hey, listen, here's the deal. You're in Christ. All things are yours because Christ is of God, and, or you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Food, adiaphora. Meat sacrificed to idols, adiaphora. It doesn't matter. So if you want to eat it, if you like a good T-bone and you want to roast it up, then roast it up. But if you have problems with that, fine. Don't do it. He goes on. In verse uh, 5, he says, One man considers one day more sacred than the other. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be... Now listen to this. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind that what he's doing, what day he picks to worship on is the day that he should or she should worship on. Do you see what just happened there? This is like postmodern relativity, right? Right, right, in, right in Romans. Paul basically says, now it, it's not actually postmodern relativity, but it sounds a lot like it. Paul says, if you think you should worship on Saturday, be fully convinced of that and do it with, with all of your heart. And if you think you should worship on Sunday, be fully convinced of that and do it with all your heart. Christians, brothers and sisters who live in community, the issue is, don't hold that against one another because it's adiaphora. It's neutral. Whether or not you worship on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, it doesn't matter. What matters is not the thing, but the thing behind the thing. What matters isn't Saturday or Sunday, but the heart that worships on Saturday or Sunday. You still follow. So that's Paul in 14 of Romans. Galatians, turn to the right a little bit. There's all kinds of stuff like this. Paul uh, in chapter 5 of, of Galatians says this, and this is kind of like a, you know, a beacon, sort of a uh, stake in the sand, uh, uh, stick in the sand, stake in the sand. What's that phrase? You know what I'm saying. <clears throat> he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. And flip to Colossians to the right, a couple more pages. At the end of Colossians chapter 2, this is a, a, a more fully orbed uh, version of what we're talking about. Paul says in verse 16, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to this religious festival, new moon celebration, or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his mind, his unspiritual mind, puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection from the head. This connects to some of the other arguments he's made. From whom the whole body supported by supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grow as God causes it to grow. Now verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. 
Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. If I could give you the Reader's Digest of what Paul just said, it's this. Legalism and strict adherence, black and white adherence to things that are not black and white, things that are actually adiaphora, when we approach them as strict black and white things and we make it about rules, it doesn't work. It doesn't produce faith. It doesn't produce maturity. And it doesn't help the person who's trying to think critically about what does it mean to follow Jesus in this world. There are things that are adiaphora, things that are neither morally mandated nor morally binding or, or forbidden. And whether or not you participate in those things, it doesn't matter. What matters is the thing behind the thing. So your freedom in Christ is wrapped up in this idea that, hey, if you want to eat meat, go for it. If you don't, don't. But what's behind the heart or what's behind the thing that we're really looking at, that we're really trying to get at? The bottom line here is Paul is saying that we are free. We're free from sin. We're free from bondage. We're free from religion. We're free from the law that, that, used, to, that used to be uh, over the people of God. We're free from all of those things. And to say something that's adiaphora is to be uh, black and white, it doesn't work and it's not helpful. Now, let's ask the question that's really important as we lean into Lent. Why do we say no to things that we're free to say yes to? Okay, remember the things that we listed. Food, drink, alcohol, chocolate, dancing, music, TV, movies. We're free to say yes to those things in Christ. It's not about that. The, there's no law saying you have to do these things if you're going to follow Jesus. You're free to do whatever you want with those. In one sense. Why do we say no to things that we're free to say yes to? Because that's really a part of, for hundreds of years, Christians have been doing this. They've been denying themselves something. They've been fasting. They've been saying, I'm going to not do this for a while. Why? What? is at the bottom of this well. In order for us to answer this question, I think we need to do a little bit of homework or a little bit of review on some ground we covered in a series called The Story. Does anybody remember our definition for sin? What is sin? If we're going to answer this question, why do we say no to things we're free to say yes to, we have to answer a couple of other questions. What is sin? We talked about the culpable disturbance of shalom, right? So when you or I do something that we can be held accountable for that disturbs the shalom that God meant in the world, sin equals when you and I are culpable, when we could be held accountable for, we're guilty of disturbing the shalom that God made, which of course begs the next question, what is shalom? How do you define that? In our working definition, shalom is universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. So in all of creation, in the physical world, in, in our minds, in our, in our bodies, in all of God's creation, universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. So this is shalom. This is the Hebrew understanding of the way God made the world. And it was good, as he says in Genesis. So the question behind the question, if sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom, and shalom is this thing, this universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, what's going on? when you and I sin? What's at work or what's at play when you and I are guilty of this? 
This is the million-dollar question. When our appetites and our desires, when our appetites and our desires, when our longings, when our want for things that are adiaphora are misappropriated or disordered, we have sin. When you and I, not because we participate in one thing or the other, but because the, ap- the, the, the appetites and the desires, the longings in our heart are misordered and misappropriated, and we experience this, we, we, we eat this or we drink that or we do this activity with a heart that's misordered and, or misappropriated and disordered, then we get sin. So why do we choose to say no to something that we're free to say yes to? Food, for example, if you've been following on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, I challenged, uh, some of, I challenged all of you to fast starting yesterday at noon, beginning today. So if I'm a little cranky, you'll know why. Why do we say to food, I'm not going to eat you for a particular period of time? A friend of mine uh, uh, chose alcohol. And, and a- a- as we talked about it, uh, she said, you know, sometimes it's just good to remind myself that that doesn't own me. Because it has the potential to own me. As does food. As does caffeine. As does chocolate. As does Uh, movies, as does any of these things, they have the potential to grab a hold of our hearts and own us. So why do we say no to things that we're free to say yes to? Because it is a good exercise for someone who follows Jesus to, 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 to take whatever this is and remove it to expose what's behind the thing. Which is what? My heart. Your heart. That's really what's at play when we're talking about sin. It's not the thing most of the time. I mean, should I go and kill my neighbor? No, okay? Not adiaphora. Not morally, uh, right? That's, that's ethically and more, that, that's about what it means to be human and what it means to follow God in this world. Okay, that's not up for grabs. There's a lot of things not up for grabs. But the things that are, Lent is about the intentional, the specific move to say no to something so that it, exp- it takes away the thing and exposes the thing behind the thing. It exposes my heart. And yesterday, I stopped eating at lunch. Uh, and it's amazing how bad you want something when you can't have it, right? I mean, there's a, just a window into the human heart. And whatever it is, So the question of why do we, we're free in Christ to to eat, to drink, to dance, to to make decisions based on how we want to live our lives on certain things. Why do we say no to things that we're free to say yes to? Because this is a good exercise to expose and then train and master the appetite or the desire behind the thing. A couple of theological conclusions as we kind of wrap this thing up here. Why is this so important and why do, why, why do we think that Lent is so beneficial and so life-giving? Because you and I need to be reminded, if you want to turn to Colossians 1, just back a couple of uh, pages, I think, where we just last left off. There's this brilliant passage from Paul and he says this, Colossians 1.15. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Speaking of Jesus, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have su- su- supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's talking about Jesus. And the point is, Jesus follower, you have one Lord. You have one person, one thing that you bow a knee to, one thing that that you submit everything to, and it's Jesus. So why would we say no to something we're free to say yes to? Because very, very sneakily, these things creep into our lives. And and again, they're neutral, right? They don't have an agenda per se, but they can sneak into our hearts and lives and take root in such a way that we bow a knee to those things. And we say, actually, that's Lord or that's master. That's what I submit to. So a reminder in Lent when we say no to something we're free to say yes to is we have one Lord and it's Jesus. I would go on to say that uh, my body is not my own. This is a, a, a massive misconception about the culture that we live in, right? That I'm an individual and I get to do what I want because my, as long as my decisions don't affect you, 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 or you, I get to do what I want. And the Bible teaches a totally different perspective that you and I, if we've said yes to Jesus, we are not our own. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So when we, when we participate in Lent and this season leading up to Easter, leading up to resurrection, we say no to something that we're free to say yes to. We're reminding ourselves that my body is not my own, that if I follow Jesus, the price that was paid for me to be whole again was Jesus's body and blood and sacrifice. So I was purchased, I was bought with a price. So to say I can do whatever I want to my body isn't actually true. Taking that one step further, not only am I not my own, but my body matters. This is an insidious lie that has crept into the church that heaven is out there and it's spiritual. And so our bodies, physical, flesh, blood, sweat, tears, you and me, it it, it, it will be there in essence somehow, like spiritually, but not in bodily form. Lie, lie, lie from Satan. Not true, not biblical, not theologically correct, not adiaphora. It matters. Your body and my body matters. Here's a quote from from one guy who I think is brilliant. He says, Jesus wants to know us and work through us as fully physical human beings, both here and hereafter. After all, God raised Jesus the Lord and will raise us too. So what you do with your body matters. The resurrection of the body, while it remains a mystery, we don't have the language to do justice to it and what it will finally mean, but it certainly means, if nothing else, that there will be some sort of continuity between the present body and the future body. What you do in the present, what you do 
in and with the present will have consequences, not just arbitrary rewards and punishments in the life to come. Bottom line, your body, my body, what we do with it, how we treat it, what we put in it or don't put in it matters. Can I tell you all of how this is all going to work out in resurrection? No, I can't. Neither can the scriptures. <laughs> and anybody who tells you that they can, don't listen to them. Uh, but you can say, and we can say on good grounds that our physical bodies matter. And somehow on the other side of resurrection, I mean, look at Jesus for crying out loud, right? He raises from the dead. And what do his disciples say? Let me see your hands and your feet. He had hands. He had feet. I don't think this was some sort of mirage mind trick that God was playing. I think Jesus is the new human. He's the ultimate, the fully human being. He can do all of the things that we're supposed to be able to do in our fullness of humanity that God made in us, but we can't because of sin and the curse. So when Jesus comes up on the other side of resurrection, what we get is a, is a, is a vision, a picture of the new human. And anyone who's in Christ, that's what awaits us. So anybody who tells you, oh, you know what? This world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's all going to burn. Don't worry about it. We don't have to care about the earth. We don't have to care about your bodies. Nobody says it that bluntly and, and crassly, but there's this sort of, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's not true. God asks us to participate in caring for the earth and caring for our, the, the world around us and caring for our bodies. For, he calls it the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, couple of conclusions as we, as we wrap this thing up. As we, as, we, as we journey into Lent and towards resurrection, a huge part of this is this idea that we say no to things that we're free to say yes to. Why? Because it's beneficial. Because it's part of what it means to be disciplined. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Lots of things, but included in there is self-control. So for us to practice saying no to things that we're free to say yes to is a good thing. Our bodies are not our own. Our bodies matter. I can't remember the first one. I have a terrible short-term memory. Uh, one Lord, one Savior, right? So let me just challenge you. Uh, as you, maybe you're, you're here for the first time this week or last week, you weren't really sure about what you were going to do with Lent. Can I just challenge you to take a step into it? Um, to, to take it a step towards experiencing it? Uh, and if you have bad baggage from the past and, 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 and your experience of Lent, we're hoping that we begin to, to, to recolor it, to re repaint the picture, because it's a beautiful thing, and it's helpful, and it's meaningful. And we're free to participate in it. If, if you don't want to, you're free to, partic to not participate. That's totally cool, too. But... I'm inviting all of anybody from Awaken uh, on Saturdays for, for the rest of Lent to fast. And we're fasting together to just say, God, would you speak to us? Would you lead us? Would you guide us? <clears throat> and if you're interested in that, Saturday at noon, eat lunch, and then work it out through Sunday at noon. And it's an amazing experience. I'm really excited to eat in a few hours here. Um, but, man, it has opened up a lot in me uh, about what's in my heart. So... Um, that's really what we're after, is what's, what's going on in here. So let me pray. I'm going to ask Ben to come, and he's just going to close with one small chorus that kind of highlights some of the themes that we've been talking about today. So let me pray, <clears throat> if you'd join me. God, as we uh, have gathered and uh, met with you, studied your scriptures, um, 
we trust that your Holy Spirit is at work and uh, is here present. God, as we journey into Lent uh, and we continue this journey as we get closer to resurrection, um, oftentimes things become more, more and more intense as we get closer and closer to that which we're going towards. So I pray uh, that as my friends uh, internalize this and, and make this their own, and maybe even try some things that they haven't tried before in Lent. I pray that you would be so present, that you would be uh, just palpable, uh, that your presence with us and your encouragement and your, your walking alongside of us, God, would be so verifiable for each of us. I guess ultimately, God, I'm, I'm praying that you'd meet us in the midst of this. Even Lent itself is just a thing. It's adiaphora. It doesn't, it, take it or leave it. You're not found in that, but you're found around it. In it because we're in it. Not in it because of the thing itself. So I pray that we would find you at the end of the day. There is no one else for me. No.